When specialist textile curators at New Zealand museums examine donated garments, often the most fascinating information comes from the signs of stains, repairs and repurposing they discover along the way. Many of these stories are shared in a new book by Te Papa's senior curator, New Zealand culture and history, Claire Renault. The book examines Aotearoa's fashionable dress history from 1840 to 1910. There's been some real detective work by Claire to find out details of the garment's owners and makers from the often scant museum records about the original donors. We have a gallery of images from the book in our webpage. Do take a look, rnz.co.nz slash standingroomonly. Claire, first of all, congratulations on the book. It's a thing of beauty as it, as it would be. You've chosen a very um, kind of specific time, 1840 to 1910. Why is that? Well, I think with 1840, that's, I suppose, when the official colonisation of New Zealand began. And with 1910, I I just wanted to finish really before the First World War because that was a period when fashion began to change quite dramatically. So it just seemed a nice, natural place to finish. What is the collections holding for those early garments? I mean, 1840, it's, it's a long time ago and textiles are tricky. To they save, yeah. They are tricky. Uh, we're very lucky. Our costume and textile collection numbers at about 9,000 garments, which is, is small for other institutions. You know, there's an institution in New York with 50,000 strong collection. But I think we were very lucky, sort of in the early 20th century, in the 1940s 50, and 50s, quite a number of cities had centenary celebrate, you know, celebrations of pioneer settlement and they often involved costume cavalcades. and it was during that period as well I think where people were getting really interested in sort of settler history that they began to think well what do we do with these things and began to give them to museums so yeah we're very lucky with that. And of course the thing here, and you you tell this all throughout the book, is it's not just looking at pictures of objects, be they dresses or the the early trousers or knickerbockers, you know, it's, it's the story behind those. Do most of the garments or many of the garments have information about the the person who made it or wore it or owned the garments? Some do, not as many as we would like. Um, Our colleagues back in the early 20th century um, would often write in the donor records, you know, belonged to donor's grandma and never named the person. Or you would have, um, was worn by, you know, Mrs Henry Smith. So So we've got a lot of men's names, but not the women's names. So some of that's been a bit of detective work. But then sometimes we are really lucky and we will have correspondence in our files or there might be labels or little notes tucked into the garments that do tell us. And when I began the process, I really wanted to try and find as many provenanced garments. So garments that either we knew who made them or we knew who wore them. And best of all, it's great if you know a garment that, you know, the maker and the wearer, that's quite rare. So in this detective work, because that is partially what you do, Claire, what, what are one or two of the, your favourite finds, you know, when you've, you've, you've found the information you went searching for? One of my favourite finds was actually very late in the piece. It was when I was working on the introduction, and I thought, oh, it'd be interesting to find what was the earliest garment that was offered to the museum. And I came across a collection of garments that had belonged to Anna Bishop. And when I sort of looked her up... I found this beautiful um, little watercolour of her in the Alexander Turnbull Library by Charles Heafy. 
and it was thought to be her wedding portrait and she's there with her beautiful little ringlets, a beautiful green silk bodice and a little posy of flowers. And then I got some old closed files out from um, our archives and was going through all the various letters and there was a group of letters associated with those garments and um, it was from her daughter and it talked about that that was her wedding bodice and that there's, you know, and Charles Heafy painted her in it. And we actually have two. So when I went to the box, there's two. Neither are in perfect condition. One's had the sleeves removed and, you know, it's obviously someone started to adapt it. The other one is short-sleeved as opposed to long sleeves, which he's wearing in the, um, the portrait. But in the portrait, it's just amazing. He's captured the way the dress sort of um, creases and folds sort of under her breasts. But in the, the actual garment, those folds and creases are all there. So you can still see the imprint of her body which has been so perfectly captured by Hefe. And then on further investigation, and particularly with my colleagues on conservation, um, there's stains inside, and they're unusual stains. Normally they're under the arms, but this eventually worked out was breast milk stains. Oh, my goodness. So these are all the sorts of things you begin... You know, sometimes you have a garment, you might not have a wearer or any information, but you can begin to understand some things from the garment itself like when seams have been stretched or they've been let out or taken in or stains like this. It's kind of more interesting than the perfect garment in some ways, isn't it? The yes. signs of wear and tear, you know. Exactly. And in that letter from her daughter Maud, you know, she said, oh, well, the skirt was um, dyed bright red and used for something else. So, again, we've got a lot of bodices with no skirts in our collection. And, of course, women were very adept were adept at um, transforming their clothes. So, up, you know, we call it upcycling now. Was that through need? I mean, materials were expensive, and, and especially in those early years, hard to get your hands on. So you would just keep using the material until you could, or was it because fashions changed and women wanted to, you know, stay in fashion? I think it was it was both. Um, material was expensive, and you know, not not always widely available. Um, women, I think, were brought up to be. Um, economically responsible and I think that sort of responsibility was also associated with morals so it was prudent to be economical and it fitted with your sort of yeah your moral upbringing so not to be frivolous and I think you know most women all had sewing skills so they were taught to be able to what's called turning their dress and of course fashion did change so particularly like in the 1860s where crinoline skirts you know the skirts got their wider so they were huge when the silhouette began to change there's all that fabric there and you could just you know repurpose it cut it down to a more fashionable silhouette and the same often happened with sleeves they would be um, adapted and tightened. Oh, yes, because they were very big at some stage. Yes, voluminous. exactly, voluminous, <laughs> yeah. with those big pagoda sleeves, and then maybe you could cut them down to more fitting. And then again, often skirts got turned into, you know, clothing for children later on. So, so do you have many examples of those big crinolines, for example, you know, those those big um, dresses that, that were, were kept in pristine condition? Or not safe? a huge amount of the 1860s ones, no. We've got we've got a few like one um oh that's eighteen fifty eight is Eliza Wrigley's dress. And that's a fascinating one. It's um again she was just noted in our records as Mrs. H, Mrs. Henry Wrigley. And she was said to have made this dress on the voyage over. 
So again, women were encouraged um, to bring sewing with them, not just partly to um, occupy themselves on the voyage, but also because if you bought fabric and it was flat-packed, it was sort of easier to transport necessarily than full garments. So she made this very voluminous garment on the voyage, but the bodice is really interesting because it's very um, flat. So we're going to think, well, actually, maybe she didn't actually understand how to cut a pattern. Because she went on to have a, a shop specialising in millinery, hosiery and, and fancy goods with yes, her husband, didn't she? Yes. So she was an interesting woman. She was a great woman, and um, Catherine Bishop's also written about her in her um, books on women in business in colonial New Zealand, um, because she had what we, you know, we now call pop-up shops. She would often travel to Hawke's Bay, and she would be there for three weeks selling goods. So she was moving about the country, raising a number of children, and, you know, when... Um, she passed away, you know, she was obviously the mainstay of the business because her husband sold the business as, as a going concern because yeah. he, yeah, he couldn't carry it on alone. You uh, talk about the advent of the sewing machine and how that was transformative for fashion. When did that come in in New Zealand, the early ones? Some people report them having them sort of in the 1850s, so probably much more available, I think, in the 1860s, 70s. And um, Toy 2 in Dunedin, um, they've got a great one that was actually uh, homemade by someone, you know, a husband from an engineering background. An entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> so that really did transform things, though. Do, do, you can tell the difference, obviously, between the, the handmade and the... Yeah, and I think just the amount of time, um, you know, it saved women, particularly with long seams. So a lot of our garments in our collection are still a mixture of um, hand sewing and machine sewing, but for your long seams, such as your skirts, etc., you know, the time was just, you know, more than halved. And for sewing linen and tablecloths, etc. So it took out that sort of laborious um, part of the sewing and people could concentrate on the more detailed the 1840s, an interesting time, of course, because you have the influx of the settlers, but of course we also have Māori here. And so are you looking at the influence also of of Māori on European, which perhaps was a bit later, but the impact of European on Māori garments? Definitely, yes. So particularly in those early times, you know, and that's that interesting thing of um, how something we can see is sometimes quite ubiquitous and just ordinary as clothing, how even something like clothing was used as a, as a colonising tool and as a tool of control. So when the missionaries arrived, their big push was to um, dress the Māori body, you know, to because um, they found the nakedness offensive. So it was that whole colonisation of the body. And again, the, they taught young girls to sew and um, thimbles were... Um, gifted as rewards. So they very much began, I think, again, to sort of more gender, um, genderise Māori culture as well, what, what, you know, girls and women did, what men did, and tried, you know, tried to Europeanise. Um, and there was, you know, the way I think they wanted Māori women to wear their hair, um, cover their bodies, etc., was all part of that colonising process. You had, there's an image in here which is shocking really of Europeans wearing Maori attire and they they, they travelled and and wore these garments. I mean completely inappropriate. Now what was the story behind that image? They are two English singers who travelled here in I think about nineteen oh eight 
and it's not quite sure who took that photo. I th- it's associated with people at the museum, so whether they are garments from us or not, but it, it was obviously like a dress-up session that they had, and then they used those photographs to promote themselves back in England. Yep, so that image is of um, English singers Clara Butt and Kennelly Rumford, and they posed for quite a number of photographs which were reproduced in England in the Tatler and the Bystander under that headline of, you know, borrowed and borrowed plumes. Um, so I'm not quite sure, there's not, I haven't found a lot of information on exactly who provided the cloaks, etc. But, you know, during that period, oh, sorry, I'm not going no, it's not right. wrong now. sort of interested in this as you say it's, it's you know what we consider very inappropriate now and it was part of a study I think I was looking really at fancy dress and particularly of Pakeha Europeans dressing as as other and that's that sort of level of appropriation. Looking at some of the the dressmakers the milliners I was kind of intrigued how quickly a fashion might come I think there was one example where there was a garment that was really only in fashion for two or three years <laughs> and then it moved on so were, were the those early New Ze- uh, settlers in Aotearoa and New Zealand very aware of the fashions overseas and trying to keep up I think they were because what you find in a lot of the correspondence women writing back to their mothers or sisters and friends saying you know what's the latest fashion and can you can you send me you know a pattern for the latest bonnet or mantle so people were very aware I think that fashions were changing and wanting to keep up and also of course magazines and fashion plates were being sent out as well so people could see through the papers and those magazines what was happening internationally. I, I think one of my favourite uh, sections is actually the active woman. I mean, that's such a, uh, a, a change in philosophy. So yes, you do get you do get garments that are way more practical. But when did this really come into into being? The the active woman, the active wear for active women. Do you think? Well, women began sort of in the nineteenth century became more involved in sport. Sort of eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. So they began to play. Um, well, tennis, uh, archery, uh, a bit of golf. But in a lot of those sports, and, a, and a, a scholar internationally has pointed this out, you would have thought that actually women playing sport would have changed fashion much more dramatically and much more quickly. When you look at all those photographs of women playing tennis, they're in their full full gear. You've got a great photo of Miss Guy posing with her tennis racket and Nelson uh, and they, her family hosted uh, lawn tennis matches, but it, it is a, it's a long, you know, dress. It looks incredibly long uncomfortable, pieces. tight, tight-fitted um, top, and even the sleeves quite tight. Yes, and often still wearing your corsets, um, your full skirts, your petticoats, and you know, often hats, as well. And you know, part of I think playing those sports where they were, um, they were part of you know, everyday leisure activities and garden parties and part of the ritual, I think, of meeting, you know, young men and women meeting because they were um, unisex sports. So there's also, you know, lots of quotes about, you know, how beautiful women can look on the um, the archery field or the tennis court and it's sort of about poise and, and posing, so it's not about exertion and sweat. 
etc. Writing seems to have changed things a little bit more. Actually, I was very taken. You've got a, a photograph from the 1860s, seems so early, with Huria Mātenga um, uh, wearing a riding habit uh, and, and um, a topper, keen horsewoman, uh, Māori woman. Um, but it's just, it just feels like a very early photograph for that. It does. But um, Māori took very quickly to horse riding and... Um, Many Māori, like the Matingas uh, and the Donnellys um, family, were great horse breeders as well. So they felt that they found the costume actually even more convenient than than what they might have worn. Previously. Well, not e- not everybody wore the costume. There's still stories of of some women riding um, astride and barefoot and in their general skirts. But formally, uh, you know, the riding habit was was the costume to wear on a horse. Um, particularly for park riding, but also there was more rugged versions for sort of cross cross country riding, and they were uh, um, made of a tougher fabric, um, beautifully tailored, very beautifully sense, tailored, yeah. yeah, and quite and much longer than your normal skirt, so they were often a quarter of a meter below the feet. So when you sat on your horse side saddle, they the fabric beautifully draped and the, they were often weighted as well. And that was also the skirt wouldn't fly up and expose your legs. And asymmetrical for that very reason, if it was side saddle? Yes, or longer at the front. Longer. And then later mm. on, because there were a lot of accidents with horse riding and women um, catching their skirts on the pommels, the... Um, a new type of skirt called the apron skirt was developed, which was sort of had a big hole at the back. And basically, when you sat on the horse, it looked like a skirt. And when you got off, you quickly um, whipped the fabric around the back and buttoned it up so it looked like you know it was a full skirt again and you were wearing your riding breeches beneath. Looking at the uh, the mountaineers, this is another area where women started to get involved, and there, there they are in their skirts in the snow. But did mountaineering also change things? And I mean, when did women go? Actually, this is really not practical. That the women who really wanted to go exploring. I think the the hardcore explorers. It was. It's really interesting about I think landscape and what's often those liminal spaces. And when women sort of got further into the mountains or into the bush, they could sort of get rid of their skirts. And it all depended on who they were travelling with as well. But I think hardcore did begin to adapt trousers. But there's also processes where skirts were sort of ruched up by a pulley system. So you would often wear breeches underneath and then the skirts would be pulled up. But when you became down the mountain, you became closer to civilization. Um, you could just lower your skirts and you could become respected. Again, khaki uh, came to be in fashion towards the end of the story that you're telling. And, and what what place did khaki have? Well, really, it became fashionable um, during the South African War. Um, so women's dress began to imitate military uniform. Yeah. So, so it still was fashion. They were just reflecting or, yeah. or referencing so through, the war. Yeah. Throughout history, I think fashion has often been influenced by military dress. Um, you see it in the sort of 17th century and, and in the past. You see it during the First World War, Second World War. So, yeah, that sort of... Um, during that period, there were a lot of festivals and fundraising activities and khaki, and I think for some reason red were the colours of of support. So people dressed in khaki, a lot of the banners and the pendants, etc., were all khaki. Quite a practical material. 
too, I guess. Um, I, mean, I, I really enjoy the way that you, you're kind of starting the, the, um, the chapters with a garment um, as well. So, again, we, we spoke about one of those early garments. What, have been, what, what are one of the garments? We talked about the stories that you love. What about one of the garments, Claire, that, that, that you, you've particularly enjoyed? I think I really enjoyed the fancy dress costumes and particularly there's a, a stunning costume in Canterbury Museum's collection from said to be from 1878 that was worn by Ellen Studholm and when I first read about that it sounded like it had been a costume that had been fully made as a, as a fancy dress costume but on close inspection you can get your hands in and lift things up um, what it showed was that it originally was a very beautiful blue silk velvet bodice and skirt and the fancy dress elements had been sort of appliqued over top so if you lift up it's got sort of beautiful bands of rich um, seal fur but if you lift those up you see these beautiful box pleats underneath. You must have had a bit of money to be able to turn what would have been an expensive garment into a fancy dress do you think? Yes they were they were quite well heeled. <laughs> well, like the, the chapter on feather mania I, I, I found quite tough to read because we know that the the fashion for feathers led to the extinction of the huia for example is my understanding um but you know feathers certainly at at one stage that was exactly what people you couldn't get enough feathers i Mm. think is what you'd say for for hats or for garments yeah and that that chapter was never in the original plan um but the more i came across um comments about feathers and I had read this wonderful book um, called Mrs Pankhurst and her her purple feather um, which made me really think about the feather industry and in our collection at Papa we have this amazing muff that's made from skin of a little spotted kiwi so the more I thought how can I can I you know I thought it was going to be a paragraph or two and then it's like actually this is such a fascinating um, area and there's actually more material than I thought and I hadn't you know, I sort of knew about the international the plumage trade, which was really big between 1870 and 1920, where, you know, Europe or England and Europe were just sort of hoovering up birds from all around the world. You know, that sort of whole period of exploration had opened up this great market. And, you know, all these bird skins, like hundreds of thousands, were being sent to London, which was the main, um, the world's feather market, and being auctioned off. What I hadn't really realised that we were we as New Zealand participated in that, so we were sending skins, um, and we've got letters in our our archive um, of a, from a, a London dealer and a French dealer, sort of ordering, you know, skins from here. So it was really that was that was that really hit me. Yeah, that was tough. Yeah, that was tough. Uh, you also, uh, we should do a shout out here for the conservators because I mentioned before that textiles can be incredibly tricky to to care for um, and and um, to conserve. And I guess what you're trying not to do that those who conserve them aren't trying to make them look like they just came out of the shop or or from the sewing machine. You know, the marks that we started mm. by talking about are part of the story here. Um, but a remarkable um, amount of work and expertise goes into preserving these. They do and we're very lucky at Papa to have um, a team of textile conservators and um, 
a specialist in costume mounting because even mounting a costume itself is an absolute art of understanding the silhouette and the form and, and how to how to um, sort of build a form to fill the garment. And of course, in the 19th century, the garments that we're talking about, they're all bespoke, so they're made for very specific bodies. So um, Samantha Gatley, who did the mounting, often began with a very small dress form. And of course, you know, you can't pop a Victorian garment on a standard perfect uh, mannequin that you know you see in all of our shops because the shoulders are too broad, they're too straight, um, the, you know, all the sizing is wrong, the waist is too big. So we start with a very small form and she pads it out. And then the conservators, um, they've did a lot of work having to sort of put support around waistbands because the garments are quite heavy. And that's quite an area of weakness, waistbands and often also linings. So we've got a beautiful um, riding habit in the book that is made from um, menton wool. It's really heavy and thick and it looks like it's in perfect condition. But then you open it up and the line, the silk lining is just shattering. So often it will shatter down, you know, like someone's got a knife and slashed it. So that will all need supporting so that we can put you know, arms in and, and safely mount the garment without doing any more damage. Will there be a, um, a follow-up book looking at the um, fashionable dress from 1911 till now, Claire? Is that a period that also interests you? It does. I worked on a book um, about a decade ago called The Dress Circle um, with Douglas Lloyd Jenkins and Lucy Hammonds, and that goes from 1940 to the 2000s. So it would be very nice to do 1910 1910 to 1940. Dressed, fashionable dress in Aotearoa, New Zealand, 1840 to 1910, is written by Claire Reno and published by Te Papa Press.